I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, Dr. Gavin Francis on medicine and human change in his latest book, Shapeshifters. Gavin Francis is a doctor and writer. He is the author of Adventures in Human Being, which won Saltire Nonfiction Book of the Year, as well as True North and Empire Antarctica, which won the Scottish Book of the Year Award and was shortlisted for the Ondati Prize and Costa Prize. He also writes for The Guardian, The Times, London Review of Books and Granta, and he lives and practices medicine in Edinburgh. And Gavin's latest book, Shapeshifters on Medicine and Human Change, we're going to talk about today. Gavin, welcome back to Little Atoms. Thank you for having me on again, Neil. So tell me, first of all, the idea behind Shapeshifters. Well, the intention with this book was to try to put together, through a series of 24 short chapters, essays, a new way of looking at the body. So I wanted, instead of looking at the body as a series of parts or as a a kind of cultural landscape the way I did in Adventures in Human Being, I wanted to look at it from the perspective that it is in ceaseless change, that our bodies are always transforming. And as a doctor, my role is often to slow down or hold back those changes that diminish us or limit us and facilitate and bring on those changes that help us to flourish. And, um, you know, that theme, that theme of transformation and change, that's a theme that has been preoccupying thinkers, poets, writers for hundreds of years. So it was a a very enticing theme to spend two or three years writing a book about. And again, you've chosen to, as well as talk about the body, to talk about representations of the body in literature, I guess none more so than in um, the idea of metamorphosis that uh, runs all the way through the book. And, and indeed, you quote Ovid among the, uh, the epigraphs. Tell me about this, this idea of using representations of, of the body, not just in your own clinical practice, but in, in literature. Well, you know, you mentioned Ovid's Metamorphoses. You know, there's the famous Metamorphosis of Kafka. Culture is really heavy with myths of transformation from sort of werewolf and uh, selkie myths, rejuvenation myths. Even, you know, in popular science culture, you know, for, for Charles Darwin, essentially mutation and transformation was the way that he understood how life had evolved. So... It's a theme which goes right back to the earliest forms of of written culture, I think. And it's a theme that is very, very pertinent to my medical, my clinical work. 
because that's what people want when they come to see me. They want to affect some kind of change in their life. Can we talk about, before we get into the meat of the book, actually talk about the patients and particularly about writing about patients. At the beginning of the book, you talk about the ideas behind that, behind confidentiality and, and how it feels to write about your own patients. Yeah, no, I'm very clear about that. I mean, page one of the book is essentially a, a note on patient confidentiality. And um, as, as I'm sure you know, Neil, the word confidence means with faith. You know, people, when you go to see a doctor, have to have faith that the doctor will be discreet about their problems. They have to have faith in the doctor, and that, that confidentiality is part of it. When I sit down to write a story that comes from the clinic, I'm very, very careful to disguise almost everything about patients that come to see me. And, and some readers might find that frustrating because they might think, well, I've come here because I want to hear uh, stories that are all true, but I don't have that liberty as a doctor. So what I want to the reader to know is right there in page one that this is essentially a work of literature. You know, all these stories are inspired by experiences that I have had in the course of my clinical work. but there are going to be significant changes to the specifics so that nobody might fear that they're going to find themselves described in the pages of one of my books. So, no, I think it is very important. And some people have come to me and said, oh, well, that's kind of frustrating. You know, you're working, you're writing essentially a work of nonfiction. And people should know that they're reading the truth. And I would counter that and say, well, you know, novelists uh, constantly take from real life and they're not expected to show you which parts are real life and which parts are not. And I think this mode of writing, this way of approaching writing for me is not that dissimilar from the process of writing a novel. It's just that, you know, we're standing on the same territory, the same grey territory between fiction and non-fiction, but we're just facing in different directions. And I think it's my duty really to make changes enough that nobody need fear when they come and see me as a doctor they're going to find themselves or read about themselves later okay so we're, we're going to go through some of the themes you cover in the book and as we go we'll look at both cultural aspects but also real life aspects of some of these things and the first one you've already mentioned werewolves the idea of werewolves which is as you've already alluded to um, i guess nowadays we, we tend to think of werewolves as being a sort of movie monster thing but it's a it's an idea that goes back extremely far in literature yeah absolutely i mean there's stories of werewolves or or turnskins as they're called going back right into greek and roman writings you know there's uh, classical authors talk about werewolves prowling the graveyards of athens there was a real craze for it through early modern period in europe when the, around the same time as witchcraft trials were going on all over the place there were a great deal of accusations of being a werewolf and what i set out to do with that chapter is examine this myth look at how fascinating it is ask a little bit about what it might be telling us about human anxieties. For example, accusations of, of being a werewolf dwindled in, in tandem with the wolf population of Europe. You know, it doesn't happen anymore, but then we don't deal with wolves anymore. But also look on the flip side at this idea that human beings can transform into animals. You know, that children play all the time at being turned into animals. The most popular children's cultural characters are humanized animals. And I was interested at in looking at what that tells us about human aspirations, what that tells us about, about how we might enter a kind of fantasy world of being faster or stronger or more agile or lighter than we are. 
I think that's quite interesting. Also, there are some biochemical medical problems which cause you to uh, shun the daylight, to have periodic outbreaks of psychiatric problems, to have hair growing across your face. And I explore some of those as well. And we'll come on to those in a second. But I just wanted to, to touch on the, I guess, the old chestnut of the idea that the moon, the full moon, has an effect on people and, you know, hospital emergency rooms get busier on the days of the full moon. I mean, how, how much truth is there in this? Well, they did a survey a while back that found that three quarters of all medical professionals believed that the full moon had an influence over the human mind. I've certainly worked in emergency departments where the staff have looked at one another in horror on a busy night and said, oh, it must be a full moon tonight. When people have attempted a survey, a proper analysis of this, they haven't been able to find any evidence for it. Uh, But essentially, we do know that if there's a full moon, people's sleep is slightly poorer. If they're in a situation of sleeping in a place where the light, the ambient light might affect them. And we do know that having poor quality sleep is very, very closely associated with deterioration in your mental health. So it's not impossible that traditionally full moon nights would have caused eruptions of poor mental health brought on through lack of sleep. You mentioned some conditions and I wanted to talk in particular about porphyria. What's that? Porphyria is um, one of these biochemical irregularities that I alluded to a moment ago. So it's it's a problem with metabolizing or with synthesizing a certain kind of chemical in the body that we really need to produce our hemoglobin of our blood. So without being able to synthesize porphyrins, you can't make hemoglobin, you can't live. Now, there are some problems, genetic problems, that can arise whereby you can't make hemoglobin properly and certain kinds of porphyrin then build up within the bloodstream. And those porphyrins or those porphyrias, that's the name of the the medical diagnosis, they can give rise to all these kinds of problems. They can make you sensitive to the light. They can give you psychiatric problems. They can cause hair to grow across your face. And so there is a theory that certain kinds of porphyria might have initiated the myth of the werewolves. And you do talk about some cases where people, I mean, I guess more through psychiatric reasons, start to believe that they are animals. Yeah, there was an interesting study done by some psychiatrists in Boston where they did a literature review and they said that that various psychiatrists had been saying that the belief that you've transformed into an animal or lycanthropy was very rare nowadays. And they said, well, we don't find it rare, actually. And in their paper, they issued a series of um, 12 cases they'd had over the last few years of people that had become psychotic in the sense that they'd become convinced that they had transformed into an animal. And they explored ways in which these different patients, each of whom felt they had transformed into an animal, that that mental illness, if you like, served some kind of need for that particular patient, much in the same way that when children uh, play at being animals, that also answers to a kind of a need. Okay, I want to move us on to conception, long misunderstood ideas around conception. And you describe Leonardo da Vinci's ideas of the reproductive system, first of all. Let's talk about what people used to believe 
the reproductive system did? Well, um, Leonardo produced, I'm sure many of your listeners will be familiar with this wonderful cartoon Leonardo produced, where he showed a couple in coitus whereby there was a kind of um, almost like an X-ray slicing of a male and a female body uh, during sexual intercourse. And he was trying to show how he believed the, the the seminal fluid of the man and the seminal fluid of the woman, because at that time it was believed that, that both sexes had a kind of seminal fluid, how they came together in the womb to create new life. And it's incredibly intricately, beautifully done, this cartoon, but with some quite striking um, errors showing uh, the, the mistakes in terms of Leonardo's understanding of the body. In terms of conception itself, when did we begin to start to understand how it actually worked? Not until the late 19th century, really. I mean, in the 18th century, people started to realise that there was an egg that seemed to be released from the ovary, but it was, still wasn't really understood until late 19th century when an egg was actually seen in the fallopian tube. And that, an egg, a human egg, wasn't seen in the fallopian tube until the 1930s. So our understanding of human fertility, human conception, is incredibly recent. You know, as late as the early 30s, it was still believed that the time of the month that was most uh, a woman was most fertile was during her um, period, during menstruation. So that's, uh, you know, only about 80 years ago, that was the widespread belief. Now, throughout your career as a doctor, you've had much experience with people who are struggling with conception. I wanted to tell us, spend some time telling us the story of a patient you call Hannah in the book. Yeah, this is, um, as, as you mentioned, you know, a lot of the work as a, of a general practitioner is about fertility. It's either it's about encouraging conception or sometimes about preventing conception, occasionally referrals for termination in the United Kingdom. This is a particular case of a woman who, despite contraception, despite the most effective methods of contraception, continued to fall pregnant, uh, no matter what kind of contraception she used. The, the essay itself looks into ideas of how conception seems to happen and also examines this extraordinary individual who seemed to be able to fall pregnant no matter what barriers were placed in the way. I want to move us on to bodybuilding, the idea of, I mean, I guess the, the beginnings of what we would now think of as, you know, the modern bodybuilding movement. And then also, basically, what abusing anabolic steroids does to a body and a mind. Um, but first of all, you know, where does this, this idea of, of, you know, the, the modern bodybuilder come from? Well, I don't think it's a particularly modern idea. I mean, it has a modern manifestation, but... You know, people have dreamed of these kind of extraordinarily muscled physiques since the myth of Hercules. And even before the myth of Hercules or Heracles, most, uh, most cultures have a story of a muscle-bound strongman. And um, these myths are, are extraordinarily widespread. I see essentially the, the, the modern bodybuilder as uh, just a modern manifestation of this very ancient desire for strength and uh, for mastery. The most modern manifestation of it, you can probably trace its origin to uh, the late 19th, early 20th century when a, a German circus strongman called uh, Eugene Sander, or that was his stage name actually, I think he was called Friedrich Müller. He coined the term bodybuilder and he started to publish pamphlets about how you can train your body 
and train your physique. And he, he very um, explicitly modeled himself on a Roman statue of Hercules. So I think we can trace the, the modern obsession back to those pamphlets. Let's talk about the abuse of anabolic steroids. And, and again, you talk about a particular patient that you had experience with. Mm. It's something that most patients are quite shy about. It's quite unusual for somebody to confess to me that they use anabolic steroids. I think a lot of people are worried about being censured or worried about um, being criticized in some way. However, there's occasions as a doctor where it's quite obvious that somebody is abusing steroids. So the steroids can bring on um, very difficult to treat acne just because of the, the hormonal nature of them. They can cause your sweat glands to go into overdrive and you start uh, getting acne. They can also cause you to have all sorts of problems with controlling your temper. You know, there's a, a anecdotal uh, descriptions of this roid rage that I've certainly seen in the clinic. And all, finally, it sometimes comes to my attention because Taking artificial male hormones causes your own production of, of male hormones to, to nosedive. And so people who take anabolic steroids, their testicles start to shrivel and they soon find themselves infertile. And it's that infertility which can sometimes bring them to the clinic. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.
You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Dr. Gavin Francis, and we're talking about his book, Shapeshifters, on medicine and human change. And Gavin, as a bold man myself, it would be remiss of me to not ask you to talk about the scalp for a while. And you begin your chapter on the scalp talking about repairing the scalp, first of all. Let's talk about that. Well, the scalp has got an extraordinarily strong blood supply. Uh, So when people injure the scalp, you know, head injuries, fights, things falling onto their heads, sometimes um, you can get the most uh, terrifying wounds in terms of blood spurting out of them. But that very very richness of, of the blood supply means that they also heal very, very quickly. So when I'm seeing somebody with a scalp injury in the emergency department, I often have to get some stitches in quickly to tighten up the skin and stop the bleeding. And then we finish it off with some staples or some glue. But a few uh, big stitches is usually a good idea to stop the bleeding. And you also mentioned here the, the great fact about where superglue comes from. <laughs> yeah, apparently um, it was invented during the Vietnam War for, for these kind of skin injuries that, that bleed a great deal. A very, very quick way of sealing up the skin. Now, in this in this chapter on the scalp, you also talk about people with sort of extraneous growths on their scalp. And I'm talking about people that basically ostensibly grow a horn. You met a patient when you were at medical school who had grown a horn. How does this happen? Well, there's various reasons. You know, it can it can actually be the at the root of a human horn. It can be a, a kind of tumor, which just causes a thickening of a horny layer of skin. Uh, it can be the, an abnormality of the sweat glands. It can be uh, related to sun damage. Uh, so the the sunlight damages the layer of the skin that renews itself, and it just starts to get thicker and thicker and thicker. So there's various reasons why humans might grow a horn. And um, I was keen to kind of relate this story of, of somebody I've met with a horn and also uh, explore the, the cultural connections with that, what that has meant through human history. And in particular, uh, the story of Moses, why Moses is always always depicted with horns. Why is, why is Moses always depicted with horns in Western iconography? <laughs> because, um, well, it's... Uh, been all put down to a mistranslation of the Bible uh, when St. Jerome uh, was translating from Hebrew into Latin. Uh, supposedly, the Hebrew word for shining was mistranslated by Jerome for uh, the word for horned. And so when Moses was described as coming back down from the mountain, his face, instead of his face being shining, his face was horned. And uh, this is something that Thomas Brown, the, the wonderful 17th century physician and wordsmith and polymath wrote about. And and so I I tried to pick up where Thomas Brown left off and explore the meanings of and the connections between the idea of being horned and the idea of being shining. You also talk about a a famous horn of of a woman called Elizabeth Lowe. Who is she? Yeah, Elizabeth Lowe. We don't know much about Elizabeth Lowe, but we just know about her horn because it's, um, it's preserved in the University of Edinburgh's anatomy collections. And there's this extraordinarily long horn. It's sort of curled like a question mark. And uh, it was cut off in the 1670s. And there's a silver medallion attached to it that means that we know more about the story of of Elizabeth Lowe, her age, and how long she'd had the horn. She had been growing seven years, apparently. And um, and it was cut off in the presence of five witnesses who were all listed, just in case you should be tempted to uh, disbelieve that this object had come from a human being. And just one other thing on the scalp. I wanted to talk about if it's actually 
true that a person's hair can turn white overnight. Yeah, well, not overnight, but it's certainly true that your hair can turn white from a big emotional shock. Absolutely. Um, There's various accounts down through history of this. Sometimes it happens on only one side, for example. And it's not thought to occur because the hairs themselves turn white, because the hairs, once they've left your scalp, are dead and can't change colour. But it's thought to happen because you preferentially lose all the coloured hair. And the the hair that's left behind is the paler ones. And so the the hair gradually goes paler and paler over a period of weeks after the shock. So that's, I'm afraid, the truth of it. I want to move us on to your chapter on anorexia. Um, And I was particularly taken by your description of anorexia as almost descending on a sufferer like a spell. Yeah, it's um, anorexia. I mean, it's a very, very serious business. As a family doctor, it can be one of the most extraordinarily difficult of mental health problems to try and help somebody overcome. You know, it's still got the highest death rate of any mental illness. And even with a lot of great support, some people very much struggle to shake it off. And when I when I meet people in the clinic who are suffering very severely with anorexia and ask them about how it came about, they often struggle to pinpoint the moment at which their relationship with food irreversibly changed. And it's almost like a kind of um, enchantment has fallen over them. And that's often the terms that they use to describe it as well, that some some malignant change has, has befallen them about how they can uh, appreciate and interact with food and when they manage to shake it off. And that's one of the most wonderful things in, in medicine is when somebody throws anorexia off and, and, and their body flourishes and is nourished again and they, they, they undergo this most wonderful transformation in reverse as their body fills out again. That is also described by a lot of patients as a quite a mysterious process almost like they can't really understand how it happened. They're just grateful for the fact that they managed to shake it off. It seems to me quite a plausible fit culturally, this idea of of some kind of enchantment falling on, just because it often comes on unbidden and then departs again just as unaccountably. In the chapter in the book on gigantism, you use part of this chapter to look into the the madness of... Nature, and I wanted to talk about why. Um, I wanted very much with that chapter. I didn't want it just to be another straight exploration of a of a hormonal transformation. So, our bodies change all the time in response to hormones, and um, and the bodybuilder chapter, as you mentioned, is is an example of that. How taking extraneous hormones can make your body change shape. I guess gigantism is another example of that. When your growth hormone goes out of control and your body just grows and grows and grows and people can reach seven, eight feet tall. That is unsustainable, ultimately. You know, the human body, the human frame isn't really uh, designed, equipped, able to maintain that kind of size. And so people with gigantism start to suffer problems with their blood pressure, their heart struggle to pump blood to such a big frame and so on. I very much wanted with that chapter for not just to be the straight exploration of the hormones, but also look at other ways in which ideas of enormity, of grandeur, of elevation, of stature are also unsustainable. And a perfect example of that is the is the madness of um, of Nietzsche, because he describes in his own writings beautifully 
how he started to lose touch with reality. He began to believe himself to be of immense philosophical stature. He believed himself. Other members of mankind were almost dwarves in comparison with his enormous mental capacities. And that, too, is unsustainable. That, too, proved uh, his downfall. And there's a lovely line from Montaigne where Montaigne says that no matter what size you are, you're as much a human being. You know, we don't measure the stature of human beings by the L or um, by the foot. And the same should be said of how we assess human beings in terms of their mental capacities. You know, you're not more human just because you're more intellectually elevated. But that's a trap that Nietzsche certainly seemed to fall into at the end of his life. Just one more then, and you you round off these chapters with a chapter on death, and within that chapter you you attend an autopsy. Tell us what happened. Well, I as a GP, a working GP, I don't often have cause to speak to forensic pathologists, but um, once a forensic pathologist was preparing a report on one of my own patients who had died, and I had to speak to her about past medical history of this particular patient. And I said to her, um, you know, I envy you guys sometimes because a lot of my medical work is about trying to imagine what's going on beneath the skin, imagine the unfolding of pathology, imagine the anatomy. And uh, you actually see once and for all what's going on under the skin when you do autopsies every day. And she said, oh, that's a bit of a myth you should uh, come and join us and find out. So I went along to sit in on some um, autopsies in the forensic pathology department in the mortuary. And um, it was a real, it was absolutely a revelation to me how how quickly the body is divided into its parts, how how amazingly professional these individuals are, just the, the depth of knowledge they can start to predict about how somebody lived and how they died. Yeah, there's no other word for it. I mean, it was a true revelation as the the body was revealed in stages from the skin right down to, you know, the base of the brain, the slicing up of the kidneys, everything revealed and laid out in the morgue. Okay, so I've been talking to Gavin Francis. We've been talking about his book Shapeshifters on Medicine and Human Change, which is out now from Profile and Welcome Collection Books. Gavin, thanks so much for taking the time to share it with me. Well, thanks for having me on, Neil. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89Up, and the podcast is hosted by Acast. Find us on iTunes, and if you like the show, please do leave us a review. You can find old interviews, new journalism and more on our website, littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. 
If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.